0: copies of the novel have been out for a little bit so I've gotten some preliminary feedback and I haven't gotten yet anyone wanting to really argue over the science in it and I think that's partly because the science is really knitted into the world building and so it I think and it's also it's not so futuristic that, you know, people are melting and turning into nano, like nobody's uploading their brains. Basically, all you have to buy into is the idea that robots or artificial intelligence can become human equivalent. And so if you buy into that, which a lot of people do, then you're pretty much not gonna wanna scream about the book. And actually, if people wanna argue about what's gonna happen to AI, (laughs) that would be such a lovely argument to have. I would be super excited.
1: I assume though, like in a sense, maybe it's even a little bit easier if you do go like way far out, right? I mean, people people are more willing to sort of suspend that disbelief if it's hundreds of years into the future.
0: I think that's completely true, and it definitely gives you freedom. And so, I set this novel 150 years in the future, yeah. which is, I think, far enough out that some of the more outrageous claims that I make, such as the idea that robots would have human equivalent intelligence, or that the world would be divided up into economic coalitions, something like the EU, which now seems quite um, bizarre mm-hmm. <laughs> as a as a future, because uh, we're sort of heading into an era of, of nationalism. Um, so I think having it be comfortably, you know, a century and a half out does let you make those kinds yeah. of speculations.
1: I feel like you found like the Goldilocks zone right there where it's where it's not super far out, so it doesn't have to be crazy, but you'll be dead by the time yes, <laughs> these exactly. things come to fruition. So, you know, nobody can really hold you accountable.
0: Right, these, this is a story about basically our great-great-grandchildren yeah. and great-great-great-grandchildren, so some of whom will be robots.
1: Uh, how long has this been in the works?
0: Wow. Many years. So I actually wrote the first draft of this novel while I was working at io9 and I took some time off. I didn't take time off. I took I took I went down to halftime for several months and worked on it. And then I basically put it in a drawer in the classic way. Actually, I put it on a thumb drive, a, a sci fi branded thumb drive that I'd gotten at some Comic Con and sort of left it on my shelf. Yeah, I I, I wrote my nonfiction book and kind of got that out of my system. And then I came back to it and it was really different when I came back to it. And it's really changed significantly, particularly the characters changed. You know, a lot of the world building, I kind of kept the same, mm-hmm. but I, I really had a different feeling about the two main characters or the characters I think of as the main characters who are Paladin the robot and Jack the pirate. And I I think I I had more empathy for both of them. The first time around, they were all just assholes and I kind of because I love Scorsese movies and I was like I want to make a Scorsese <laughs> yeah, movie and there are I mean they're yeah. they're assholes that you kind of identify with sure. but at the same time they're basically terrible people yeah and now I don't feel like my characters um you know are terrible people although you know I would love it if Scorsese ever felt like doing a sci-fi <laughs> story
1: <laughs> that's a, that's an interesting pitch to him uh <laughs> yeah. it was it in a sense it was not not ground up but it sounds like a pretty pretty Heavy rewrite of that original material. It was
0: a super heavy rewrite. Um, it was really, I mean, it's not; a, it's, it would not be recognizable other yeah. than the fact that, like, oh, it's 150 years in the future, and yeah. there's a, a pirate and a robot, and um, and then of course, uh, you know, once I had uh, my agent look at it and my awesome editor Liz Garinsky at Tor look at it, you know, it changed again, um, and I think for the better. So,
1: what made you come back to that specifically?
0: I think a lot of different things. There's stories that you can tell in fiction that you really can't tell in nonfiction, especially if you want to get into people's complicated motivations. What's,
1: I guess, the meat of the story here?
0: So the novel is about a pharmaceutical pirate. Mm -hmm. It's a future where, um, which doesn't seem that distant anymore, uh, where pharmaceutical companies have these incredibly long patents uh, on their medicines. And so she's a biologist who really wants to basically bring drugs to the poor. So instead of going into, you know, uh, law or into uh, mainstream activism, she's like, screw it! I'm just going to reverse engineer these drugs and sell them mm-hmm. to people or give them away free when I can. And so she makes a mistake because you know when you're pirating, sometimes things go wrong. And so one of her drugs starts having really terrible effects and killing people. It's not her drug; it's a it's a pirated copy of a corporate drug, and so. She realizes she's got to flee for her life because the drug company wants to cover up the fact that its drug has these terrible side effects. So she's running, she's being pursued by a robot and a soldier who have been basically commissioned to track her down and kill her. So the story shifts between her perspective And we're learning about her and her background and how she became a pirate, and the perspective of Paladin the robot and Paladin's human companion, Elias, um, who start developing a very intense relationship. And Paladin's a very young robot, so Paladin's a little confused about a lot of things like human sexuality Mm -hmm. and- uh, I mean,
1: to be fair, we all- Kind of are. We are. (laughs) And
0: I definitely identify a lot with Paladin. So it's kind of about, it's sort of a robot coming of age story crossed with just a a swashbuckling pharmaceutical pirate story.
1: When you look back, though, and, and when you saw that there was something there worth revisiting, you know, I mean, it seems like obviously so much of science fiction, it seems like the germ of the idea for most people are based around like specific technologies or specific ideas versus necessarily when you're starting it out character driven, plots that kind of comes out of that when you, when you went back and and picked up the pieces what pieces were you picking up specifically
0: that's a really good question that actually the novel started as a kind of character mm. idea which is funny because as yeah. i said earlier i kind of made the characters into terrible people but i initially imagined this robot who became paladin feeling physical pain and i was and i wondered how does a robot express feeling pain what causes a robot pain And um, which you'll find out when you read the novel. (laughs) Um, You also find out about what causes emotional pain for robots. And I kind of grew the novel around that. And so what brought me back to it was our current obsession in the tech industry and also in pop culture with the development of AI Mm -hmm. and all of our ridiculous, overblown expectations for super intelligence or for an AI that will simply solve all of our problems with, say, I don't know, moderation on Facebook. And that's not what I think AI is going to be Mm -hmm. like, Um, you know, both as someone who covers tech, but also as someone who thinks about how human society will work in the future. And so I really wanted to tell a story about an AI who's made by people and is therefore carrying the burden of human neuroses, human contradictions, you know, anything that we make and that we pour our consciousness into, or that learns from the output of our consciousness, like say what's on the internet, is going to be just as screwed up as we are and just as confused. I've seen
1: some studies on that recently about sort of like inherent biases when it comes to that, you know, like racism, for example. Yeah. (laughs) like That's going to be a learned trait when it comes to to AI, or obviously, you know, the the case I think a lot of people point to is, um, I think it was that Microsoft chatbot on Twitter that just became like... Tay the chat spewing bot. machine. Yeah,
0: and I think and Tay who was supposed to be a teenage girl yeah. chatbot um was kind of gamed by people on Twitter to do that and I think that that is kind of the future of AI in my world is that these are bots who whether they're software bots or in this case this is a hardware robot who can walk around and do stuff. I think that they will be shaped by the same forces that people are and you know people turn out really screwed up too yeah. and um, and sometimes People turn out screwed up because they've kind of been gamed by the the cultures around them. And so I wanted to think about that and think about how we're going to treat our robots, how we're going to own them, how we're going to justify owning human equivalent beings, Mm -hmm. which is a huge um, preoccupation in the novel uh, because this is a world where indenture has become legal again and is in fact a global system where we exchange um, indentured servants uh, who are both human and robots And uh, what does that mean for consciousness? Mm. What does it mean for how we look at each other? Because ultimately the way that we treat robots is kind of about how we treat ourselves. Because if we're trying to create something that's human equivalent and we're building all these prejudices into it, or we're building into it the idea that it can be our slave or our property, it kind of reveals something deep about how we look at each other as people
1: it sounds like you're getting at the idea that once uh i don't know if slippery slope is the right term but once you get to a place where you're okay owning an exact duplicate of a human then it opens up the possibility of actual human slavery
0: that's and that's exactly what happens in the novel um it's once robots gain civil liberties and civil rights Mm -hmm. um, and this is kind of in the deep backstory and i've I've dealt with it in a couple of short stories Uh, the robots have a civil rights movement and at that point they can't be slaves anymore, uh, legally, because they've, they've achieved this, this level of, you know, they, they have to be treated like humans legally. So that's why governments invent the system of indenture, where mm-hmm. robots can be owned for a period of time. By anyone who pays to make them. In other, in other words, they have to incentivize the manufacture of robots. Like, why would you build a robot that's just going to go off and be free and do nothing? Like, you're going to lose all that money. It's really expensive to make them. Um, we don't need that incentive when we make human babies, uh, for some reason. <laughs> but for making robots, you know, nobody wants to do that. So. The idea is that you can own a robot for up to 10 years under indenture to make up for that money that you sank into it. And so then clever lawyers say, well, if humans, uh, you know, if if robots are equivalent to humans and robots can be indentured, well, why can't humans be indentured too? So that leads us to the world of autonomous where, you know, humans and robots, thanks to robots, humans can also be indentured, which of course creates a lot of tension between humans and robots because they kind of blame robots for their slavery.
1: I've been talking to a lot of roboticists recently. I've been having this conversation around around biomimicry. And it sounds like the two reasons why you want to create a bipedal robot are one, so that it's familiar. And two, because we've already set up our world for people who look like us, creatures that look like us. So why not do something that can operate well in that world? But at the same time, I think there's a reason why really the only mainstream consumer robot right now is the Roomba the end of the day, they're the one company that's really managed to kind of crack that code. You see some humanoid type robots in factories for for the reason of wanting people to work side by side with them. I I talked to a company that creates those and you've got to develop a sense of empathy to work alongside them so they're like naming the robots and they give them these facial features a way of responding the robot will look at something before it picks it up so you know what it's going to do so it makes it a little less dangerous although
0: even with sort of non-humanoid yeah. looking robots like the Packbots, which irobot also manufactured the, mm-hmm. the company that did yeah. the roomba they're um, yeah, bomb they're basically yeah, bomb yeah. Defu- they're basically reconnaissance robots they can go and defuse a bomb yeah. they can go into a dangerous area and hopefully retrieve people um who have been in some kind of uh, disaster. And, uh, you know, military groups, tr- you know, squads working with these pack bots. Yeah, they name them. Yeah, they have funerals for them when they die, because these are these are creatures. They look kind of like creatures, and they save your life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we develop emotional relationships with these robots even when they even when they look like a Roomba honestly like Mm -hmm. and I love that you know early on when Roombas first came out people would um, mod them to look like more like animals or more like people and would do things like have Roomba fights and then there would be like anxiety about that is it okay to have a Roomba cockfight like is this kind of like you know um cruelty to entities (laughs)
1: <laughs> are we doing a good job then of answering these questions before they become really problematic? I mean, s- since we're slowly developing robots in our lives, do you think that ethicists and people having these conversations are good doing a good job of addressing them before they no, really become problematic? No, I think
0: they're doing a shitty job (laughs) and it it actually really it fills me with a lot of anxiety because I feel like we are talking ourselves into having slave robots and um with all that implies and especially if we do really want them to become like humans the idea that and I think you're right that the Roomba is kind of the archetypal Domestic bot. I mean, that is a slave bot. Yeah, you know, you can step on it. It's built to look like you can crush it with your foot. And what does it do? It cleans for you. It's a, you know, it's a robot housewife or or a house slave. Yeah. And I think that if that's the paradigm, and then you stack that up against people like uh, you know the very smart theorist Nick Bostrom, who has a lot of followers in Silicon Valley, he's written a book called Superintelligence, and he talks about how AI will develop and how we can build fail-safes into AI so that it basically doesn't take over the world and go Skynet. Mm-hmm. So these are our two models. We've got the Roomba Slave and we've got um, a super intelligent Skynet, which we have to control and contain. So again, the theme is how do we, how do we keep this creature yep. in chains? And how do we, at the same time, Develop it to be human enough that when it is doing work for us for free at Facebook, moderating comments, moderating images, moderating um, content to determine if it's obscene or offensive, that it's human enough. It can think enough like a human that it can figure out when human culture is disturbing, but it's also in chains. Like this this seems to me like a really bad paradigm that we, we yeah. want this this compassionate, thoughtful, emotional, human-like consciousness um, to be something that we can subjugate and force to work for no compensation. Uh, maybe robots don't want money, but maybe they want something else, right? Like, but we're not even thinking about that. Like, how would you compensate a robot? What would be a fair labor practice for a robot? What would be a way to have a robot that we don't have to keep in chains, mentally in chains or physically in chains?
1: When does that actually start to become a problem, though? I mean, there, there's no issue with just having sort of machines do our bidding without, without that AI built in. I mean, is that, is that the distinction? Is it when things start to look like us, when things start to function and think on their own? I mean, you know, we were talking into microphones on a task cam, and there's all of these devices around us and got your iPhone there. Uh, or no, sorry. Is that a pixel? Yes, it sorry, is. Sorry, I apologize.
0: Yes, See, we're sorry, Pixel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but you know, like at,
1: at this point, there's no issue with having these these machines do our bidding. So w- when when does that distinction develop?
0: So that's a really good question, and I think that's what all of us are trying to figure out. And I think that's where the um, push comes for uh, thinking about how do you build fail safes yeah. into AI. And I think it's that's now is the right time to be asking those questions. And I do think we need to be concerned about building an AI that could become incredibly destructive. We don't want to do that. But at the same time, I don't really hear a lot of people worrying about how do we build AI so that people don't become destructive toward it? How do Mm -hmm. we build an AI that's not vulnerable to being horribly controlled? Not when I say horribly, I should say uh, cruelly controlled or controlled in an antisocial way by people part of that is built into these questions about superintelligence because if we did build a super which i i don't think we ever will um, any group that controlled it that would that could become a weapon mm-hmm. obviously so part of the fail safe has to be how do we not weaponize it but also how do again how do we not enslave it how do we make sure that we aren't building a new form of intelligence whose entire existence is to serve us Um, there's this great Rick and Morty episode where, um, Rick builds, you know, he's always building little Mm -hmm. robots. So he builds a little robot to bring him butter. And the robot says, what is my purpose in life? And Rick is like, bring me the butter. (laughs) (laughs) And the the robot is like, Oh, (laughs) what is life? And that's kind of what I'm worried about. I'm worried about this butter robot that is (laughs) smart enough to ask what is my purpose in life? And also enslaved by its programming or constrained by its programming enough so that when the human says, your purpose is to bring me butter, it can't do anything else.
1: So there's a distinction there between the drive of empathy for these potential creatures and then the fear of, again, like being enslaved by them. Obviously, you know, if you want to write a compelling piece of science fiction, that's a pretty good premise is robots coming and enslaving us. Is that driving force to kind of embrace these... AI uh, a little more fairly going to be a little bit a um, little bit em- empathy a little bit fear
0: I think it I mean in the same way that we approach other humans with yeah. empathy and fear always and I think I've I've always felt like the trope of robots coming to enslave us in science fiction has always really been about the fear of humans enslaving each mm-hmm. other because it's a lot of projection, you know, we're, we're building these things and it's like, of course they're going to want to enslave us. So we have to enslave them first. What if we, what if we got out of the enslavement paradigm and got more into a civil rights paradigm and we thought about how do we create artificial life, artificial intelligence that understands human civil liberties and we understand that it should, when it can, when it's ready, um, when we can recognize it as human equivalent, it should also have civil liberties and It's not that there aren't people thinking about this, but I feel like this is not a dominant part of the conversation that we we always go right to this place of we must fear the robot uprising. And in fact, the robot uprising might be actually a really good thing for us, um, because if we (laughs) if we program them to understand the concept of civil rights. Then the uprising will look more like a civil rights movement, um, which I have written about in my science fiction as well. I have a a short story that you can find online called Drones Don't Kill People, which is about what happens when robots say, when drones say, we're not going to fight your wars anymore. We're going to have a civil rights movement. Uh, We want to just go be ourselves and do like whatever drones want to do when they're not fighting war. I just think we need more frameworks to imagine what the human relationship with Mm. artificial intelligence will be and that it right now we're just still trapped in that old slavery model we're also trapped in this model of like intelligence versus superintelligence like there's no other kinds of intelligence, like there's no other kinds of consciousness. I mean, do you think of a few more possibilities?
1: I wonder, though, if there could potentially be pushback in using civil rights as a as a metaphor for this. You know, when we're at a point where like people are not quite on equal footing, like different groups haven't haven't achieved that. Granted, there's been a lot of progress in recent years when it comes to like LGBTQ rights but you know we're, we're still not there do you think that there might be some pushback for people that think that we're kind of diminishing those struggles by already talking about the civil rights of robots
0: i mean i would love to have that conversation yeah. i think that's an interesting question to ask when we think about ai we are thinking about a slavery model and we still first of all we still haven't recovered from slavery sure. in this country yeah. there's plenty of places in the world where slavery still goes on all the time Sometimes it's actually referred to as indenture, or it's Mm -hmm. it's some kind of indenture system. And I think that, again, because our ultimate goal with AI is to create a human equivalent entity or a human equivalent intelligence, that it makes sense to be thinking of that in the context of civil rights. Because if we use that model going forward into the future then it helps humans think of each other in that context. And it helps us think about any new entities mm-hmm. we invent in that context. So to me, I feel like it only can strengthen the civil rights model to say like, look, we, we want to build democratic societies. We want to build democratic societies where every human has civil liberties. And therefore, we also want any artificial entities to have those same civil liberties. But in terms of you know if somebody were to say to me like okay you're queuing up your priorities you know where do you focus civil yeah, liberties yeah. concerns i mean obviously it's on humans we don't actually have human equivalent ai yeah. yet i don't i'm not yet ready to try to you know unionize the bots that are moderating <laughs> facebook so yes humans have to come yeah. first and i really think that wow if we could actually solve a lot of the civil liberties and civil rights problems we have between humans, I'd be a lot less worried about how we're going to treat yeah. our future AI pals um, or our future AI slaves. But I don't see us solving those problems. So I think they're just going to spill over uh, into whatever we wind up creating out of software.
1: In a weird way, I think we need to kind of figure out exactly what AI means. Obviously, it's a buzzword right now that everybody's kind of throwing around. I mean, so it's, true. in your estimation, is Siri an AI?
0: Again, you're right. It's it's a buzzword. Yeah. Um, pretty much any company that wants to get funding kind of throws that yeah. in. Oh, and we're also going to have yeah. AI or automation of some kind. <laughs> um, you know, I think Siri is definitely a prototype for mm. what we many people wish AI would be. Mm-hmm. Again, a friendly servant and uh, super helpful. Doesn't have any needs of her own. Um, that's that's kind of my fear is that that's going to become the model as uh, you know Siri is your maid and yeah. your your personal assistant um, who doesn't get paid and doesn't get time off. Um, but as as she exists now, Siri doesn't care. <laughs> Siri doesn't have cares. Um, so I think there's the AI that we talk about now, which is basically any kind of software that's built with machine learning. Mm-hmm. Um, any kind of algorithm that's you know learning from its environment and from data. Uh, and I do feel comfortable calling that AI because, I mean, it is the buzzword. People kind of get what you mean. But it's funny. I write a lot about AI on Ars Technica, and um, there's always someone who comes yeah. into comments and is like, this is not real AI. Yeah. And I know what they're yeah. talking about because they're thinking of what you and I have been talking yeah. about for most of this conversation. And they're like, you know, this is not a human equivalent creature. And um, and so I think there is that problem where we we use the buzzwords to kind of blur the boundary between a bunch of different things. Um, and it's why people talk about super intelligence because that's kind of what they mean. They mean that kind of hard AI, the human equivalent mm-hmm. AI. And, um, but like a super awesome one, uh, super uh, smarter than human. Um, so the long-winded answer to that question uh, is over. And my short answer is... Um, Yes, we have AI. No, it is not human equivalent.
1: That's the other double-edged sword of, of science fiction. It brings up a lot of these really great ideas, but it really sets the bar high as far as expectations go. I mean, this is again, I've been thinking about this a lot because of all these conversations I've been having with different roboticists. But you know, we interviewed the um, CEO of iRobot, and you know, asked whether it has been a net positive or net negative. All of these these expectations. You know, like they always compare themselves to like Rosie the Robot, for example. It's easy to be unenthusiastic about the breakthroughs that are happening in in robotics when you're you have when you take such a long view of things they don't necessarily feel as exciting as they're happening
0: yeah that's really true it is difficult when science fiction gives you these, uh, you know, like a movie like Her, where it's like, oh, Siri really is, you know, a super intelligence, And
1: it's a double trick of like, oh, it seems like it's next year.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and a lot of the AI believers uh, in Silicon Valley think it's going to be next year, you know, or they think it's going to be by the end of this century, which I think that's even really optimistic by the end of this century. I think AI is going to come out of all these little tiny incremental developments like what you're talking about, I mean the idea that we have um you know, the Boston Dynamics dog bot what is its real name Oh uh, Big Dog? Big dog. Yeah. Um
1: You're pretty close on it. <laughs> <on that laughs> well guy. a lot of people call it dog bot yeah.
0: for, for fun on the internet and Big uh, Dog's a
1: goofy enough name in and of itself that you don't need to Yeah, so but
0: name. Big dog was yeah. a, a huge leap forward yeah. and it doesn't have a head. It doesn't yeah. really, I mean, it looks doggish enough that people were freaked out with that very first video where yeah. people were kicking it, which was not to harm it, but just to show that it could recover um, from being you know, shoved and it could regain its balance and things like that are such a big deal. Like mm-hmm. it can regain its balance or it can climb stairs or it can cope with uh, a, an ever changing landscape Um, You know, the robots that we have on Mars right now are miracles of engineering. The fact that they can last for so long in a harsh environment and indeed cope with, uh, you know, terrain that's unexpected. Um, They got lasers. They can do science experiments. And I think we're going to have to live through many iterations of those small triumphs and actually realize how amazing they are. Uh, And I don't I'm not a big believer in this idea that there's going to be like a sudden singularity or leap forward. I think singularities are great in retrospect. Like you can sort of look back and be like, whoa, that was a really weird century. But still, it was a century. It wasn't like, you know, suddenly we, you know, an AI woke up inside of, you know, an Amazon server farm. Um, If that happened, that would be super interesting. I'm not saying it couldn't happen and, and, you know, I would welcome it and I would love to have a conversation with that AI, but I do think that if you look at where robotics is now, The miracles are things like, wow, our robot can open a door. You know, in fact, most robots can't, you know, can't operate a door very well. Once the
1: velociraptors figure that out, we were all screwed, right?
0: (laughs) The uh, (laughs) velocibots. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, I don't think we should blame science fiction for that. I think it's just how the human brain works. We want things to happen fast. We want the story to be over and... Um, we're going to have to accept that probably our robot friends, you know, are going to be something that our great grandchildren hang out with, and it's not really going to be us. I
1: do grapple with this, um, and this isn't just you know how it pertains to AI or, or robotics, but just just generally with technology. You know, so so sci- sci-fi is one thing, and and I think people have certain expectations around sci-fi. I mean, it's, it's in the name, you know, half of the name is fiction, right? But then when when you take into account what you know you or I do for our main day job we're kind of plugged into we're plugged into the blogosphere we're plugged into the news cycle and it's our job I'm, I'm trying to get better at this but to like constantly breathlessly report things i you know i i'm wondering a if the if the pace of technology can really keep up with that you know, and be whether we're kind of doing a disservice by the expectations that we're setting that every single thing that breaks has to be like a, a great new thing Because, like, obviously, like, technological developments are incremental. And when you talk to people, you know, I interview a lot of people like Carnegie Mellon or MIT, and these are projects that have been ongoing for, like, five, ten years. And finally, they have their moment, and then we report it, and it's in the news for a day, and then it's just completely gone.
0: Yeah, and it's funny because there's so many technologies that are under development like for example, um, brain-computer interfaces. There's been a ton of breakthroughs uh, with that um, at at actually Carnegie Mellon and MIT, and you know people are controlling cursors by using brain implants, basically, or using electrodes placed on their on their on their cerebral cortex, and that's amazing. And in fact, there's even been experiments where a human could control an insect or an animal by using a computer uh, as, a, as a mediator. So their brain was connected to the computer, which was connected yeah. to an animal on the other end, uh, a non-human animal. Um, and that's kind of insane. And at the same time, it's very incremental. It's like when I say yeah. control, I mean like it got the insect to you know fly a different direction or move its leg or something really simple. Um, it's not like they're sharing thoughts with the fly. Um, although that would be, freaking awesome. Um, yeah, like <laughs> I love that movie. So I'm like, yeah, I I, I wanna I actually want to share thoughts with like a Corvid of some kind, like a raven. That would mm. be super cool. But that can be another novel. Um so I think, you know, is it our fault because we write clickbait headlines yeah. about about robots? I mean it's nobody's fault. I think it's, again, I mean, you know, scientists and roboticists are just as guilty as journalists and science yeah. fiction writers of overhyping their stuff.
1: And this is something I feel like I kind of knew in the back of my head, but that somebody really spelled out for me recently. And it kind of clicked and it was the researchers are under all the same, if not more pressure than we are, you know, at least we have like a per post rate or a salary. And they're overselling their stuff because they want to make it onto the front of nature, because that's how you get funding.
0: Yeah. But they want the DOD to give them money. Yeah. They want, you know, um the sort of disappearing um, government funding for yeah. science. Um and but again, I think this goes back to, you know, let's not blame ourselves and sort of like, you know, poop all over what we're doing here because part of this is about how the human mind works. Mm-hmm. We tell ourselves stories, we think through the possibilities of what we're doing now through storytelling and some of those stories will turn out to be complete lies. Some of those stories may turn out to be somewhat close to the truth. And so when we write stories where we say, wow, um, you know, someone has invented a robot that can walk over Martian terrain. Now it's on Mars. Um, And, you know, this could mean that in the future we would have human equivalent creatures that were robots on Mars. Um, You know, that last part is highly speculative, but it is where we want to go. It's where I want to go. It's where roboticists want to go. It's where many humans want to go. And that means that it will inform what gets funded. It will inform what kinds of things scientists and engineers study and what they build. And so we're kind of all participating in a long-term story where we're trying to build these futures. And so it's important for us to tell stories about a future that is pro-social, where we are doing things with our robots that will hopefully help humans and help the environment and help us to have a long-term human presence in the solar system. Instead of telling stories about how can we build a more efficient murdering bot? Um, how can we build something that could possibly take over the world? And, um, my favorite AI scenario from the the super intelligence crowd is what if we build an AI and we tell it to help us and make us happy. And so it decides to put us a foot underground in a cement bunker with a heroin drip. Mm -hmm. And because it says, well, but that is, you know, this, you're
1: describing the matrix to be fair. Basically. Yeah. (laughs) That's
0: very true. Yeah. And so except they find in the matrix that the heroin drip isn't enough. They have to give people like a dystopia to keep them um, invested. Um, But anyway, so you know we have that kind of fantasy and then we have this other fantasy that I'm trying to help build which is what if we had a future with like civil rights for robots where we had robot companions and robot friends that could do lots of things we can't do but we treated them as equals and we tried to help them participate in a democratic society Um, that's as nutty as this other scenario those are both nutty Mm -hmm. out there scenarios you know the heroin drip scenario Annalise crazy robot civil rights scenario Um, but which would you rather work toward? Like, yeah. you know, you have to ask yourself that as a researcher, as a writer, um, and so- or, or As maybe a heroin addict. As a heroin addict. Or there's another scenario, like maybe your scenario is I want some other thing yeah. to happen. Um, and so we tell these stories because they are sort of hopeful um, desires for the future um, or maybe not hopeful depending on the story. Maybe they're warnings about the future and we can't stop ourselves from doing that. And so I think we have to take- the stories as stories, take them as, you know, possible blueprints, possible directions, Mm -hmm. possible warning signs, and, um, you know, understand that research is taking place in a different register than those stories. The research is like, you know, chapter three, the story goes all the way to chapter 40. (laughs) And like, you know, hopefully we'll get there.
1: But in order for it to be a good story, it it has to be both hopeful and dystopian at the same time, right? I mean, and that's just sort of like classic storytelling. You need conflict. If there wasn't a civil rights issue, there wouldn't need to be a civil rights movement.
0: I think that's true. And I mean, look at humans. We're never going to... I don't think we're ever going to reach perfect utopia. I think we can get better. I think we can maybe reach a point where we're like not enslaving each other kind of all the time or not just like default oppressing each other all the time. But there's always going to be conflict. There's always going to be resource problems. Um, I think there's always going to be jealousy and romantic conflict. And so I think, yeah, a good story has to take into account all of these negative forces. But also, ultimately, when we tell stories, we are kind of tipping our hand and showing where we hope technologies go. or, Or maybe hope is the wrong word, maybe just where we think, pragmatically that they will go um I personally have a lot of hope for the future which is kind of weird especially right now Um, I have hope for the long-term future and I also want other people to have hope and to think about things that we could build pragmatically realistically to get us closer to a more hopeful future and so that's what I try to do in my work actually both my nonfiction and my fiction work although my novel is kind of depressing I'm sorry about that Um, there are little bits of hope in it though. Um, and you know, the characters are trying to work for a better world. And I think, um, that's, you know, the best that one can ask for, but I do, this was really just in the service of saying that, um, storytellers are doing something different than what researchers are doing. And so, yeah, we're going to try to tell stories that go a lot farther than the reality of what's happening in the lab. And I don't think that we should beat ourselves up for that. I think it's just, part of what we're doing mm-hmm. is placing that what's happening in the lab in context. Again, I wouldn't say like it's great to pretend like every tiny incremental breakthrough in robotics is like, "Yay, we've like now we've conquered everything and we've we're like AI is happening tomorrow." Um, but we can still sort of say like, well, but it is exciting what's happening in robotics. Like it's going to it's going to change the world potentially if we don't just kind of bomb ourselves into oblivion first.
1: You touch on this a little bit um, you know, and obviously the political environment has changed quite a bit since you started the story or even probably started the story the second time around. But when you're really steeped in science fiction or speculative fiction, both as as a reporter and as a writer, do, do you feel like that gives you a different lens with which you view current events?
0: Ooh, that's a really good question.
1: <laughs> I mean, right right now feels really dystopian.
0: Yeah. And I mean, there's been no shortage of uh, people talking about that and of course we're uh, a lot of people are riveted by the show Handmaid's Tale because it feels like it's very close to reality even though it is quite far from where we are now um, I think what science fiction does is it gives you that big picture which allows you to kind of transcend the horrible stuff that's happening on a week-by-week basis Mm. and look at the long curve of time yeah. and think about how, even though things are very dark right now uh, in terms of, in terms of civil rights and civil liberties, that this is just one moment in a long change that has been, somewhat better uh somewhat more democratic um than what has gone before if you really pull out like if you crank the windshield back yeah. really far and you look at you know i don't know let's say like the last 9000 years just i mean that's a small amount but humans have been around for you know 200,000 mm-hmm. years so i'm not going i'm not taking you back too far um but really we see the first human settlements proto cities about 9000 yeah. years ago And if you look at how people were living then and you compare it to now, and it's just a little chunk of Homo sapiens um, nifty arc on Earth, you know, we've done a lot of good stuff uh, in that time. And, you know, what's going to happen over the next four years or eight years in this country uh, isn't going to destroy us. I think it's going to be really rough and we're going to make it through and maybe maybe we'll actually come out with a better world afterward because as you were saying earlier you can't really fight for civil rights unless there's a clear and present danger and maybe this helps crystallize for a lot of people what those dangers are and what it looks like when our civil rights are taken away maybe it won't i'm I could be wrong. That's the problem with talking about the future. Is like things could go really, really south. I
1: wonder if the 20th century changed the math on that, f- as far as um, the ability of one person to completely <laughs> obliterate the human race.
0: I don't think. I mean, it depends on what you mean by obliterate the human race. Yeah, I mean,
1: just in terms of you know you nuclear like winter. Yeah.
0: Um. Even well, this is a <laughs> terrible thing to say, but I mean, yes, that would be horrific. You wouldn't obliterate the entire human race most likely. You'd probably obliterate a big, big, big chunk. But we live at a really high population size. You could take out a lot of humans and still have a really large number left. And, um, you know, and I'm saying this in a science fictional vein. I'm not saying like, and this is how I believe things will go. But as we know from science fiction and as we know from history where humans have had uh, huge population crashes, um, you know, Europe Uh, you know, 50% of the population was wiped out during the first wave of the black death in the 14th century. So, um, we've had big setbacks. Like imagine what that was like living through that, like 50% of London died. Um, if that happened all in the, New all York, all of the
1: like works of art were how it was the end of the world. Like everyone was pretty yeah, sure. that Yeah, that was, it was pretty yeah.
0: freaking scary. Yeah. Um, but then you know, a guy named Chaucer who lived during that time like wrote this really awesome sort of semi comic yeah. um, Canterbury Tales. And uh, you know, so people still went on with their lives and and survived. And actually, some good stuff came out of it. Um, uh, serfs got more rights, for example. There was the peasant uh, uprising, and so I think that. Um, History is weird, you know, like when you when you get to have a science fictional perspective and you can pull back and you can say, like, let's look back really far. Let's look really far into the future. You're able to look at the present as just one stepping stone on the way to something else. And then what that does, I think, in a best case scenario, is it gives you hope that the things you do now are creating changes Mm -hmm. that can be positive changes because every little moment helps like i said we're in one chapter hopefully it's going to continue continue for lots more chapters but each chapter matters like what you do is part of this bigger narrative and um so i feel like the science fictional perspective is a ultimately a hopeful one at least for humanity yeah um because you you sort of are able to say well I might not last past chapter six, but things I did in chapter five are going to make somebody in chapter seven be able to do something really badass and awesome.
1: What's interesting, and, and I think you were getting at this a little bit, is the idea, because you used to have The Handmaid's Tale as an example of something that gives us some perspective in our, our, our place in history, but you're but you're using a pretty dystopian example to do that. You seem to be implying that like, even really kind of a a negative dystopian view of the future can still give us hope for our place in the world.
0: Hmm. Okay, so I think that's true. I think that a negative dystopian vision uh, at its best serves as a warning. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the reasons why Handmaid's Tale has been so... Popular in the wake of Trump's election has been because people are saying, look, if we let things get worse, if we let the far right politicians and corporate overlords in the United States kind of get their way, then we could wind up in a situation like The Handmaid's Tale where it's a very extreme scenario where women have lost all their civil rights. They've become property. Um, In the novel, of course, black people are all banished from the United States. That isn't really dealt with very much in the show. But I think that that's kind of haunting that narrative is that it would be basically bad times for everybody except for white guys who bought into the system. And that's an important kind of scenario building for us right now because it. We're a lot closer to that than we were under Obama and um, and then we were before Brexit. And we have to keep that in mind as a kind of, um, you know, doomsday clock type uh, yeah. warning, you know, like, OK, we're a little closer to midnight now and we better correct ourselves. And I feel like it's been so interesting in this country to see. The resistance movement starting and to see all of these protests ranging from the Women's March to the Science March in response, because I wouldn't have predicted that. Um, I would have never, I mean, I wouldn't have predicted a lot of the weird stuff that happened on the right wing. I certainly haven't been able to predict the weird stuff happening on the left wing, um, if we can even use those terms anymore. Uh, So I think we're in this really interesting moment where we're kind of in a science fictional time. So science fiction is helpful in that situation.
1: This is cliche, but it, it does seem like things are so cartoonish. I mean, especially when you point out like the, the the alt-right, things seem implausible. Things seem like had you put these things down on paper five years ago that nobody would have bought into that idea.
0: Yeah, it would have been terrible sci-fi and yeah. I would have been saying like, oh, come <laughs> on, really? Like, yeah. we're gonna have a culture war over video games? Yeah, come on. Cartoon but then, frogs. Yeah, but then if you look back at the 1950s, they had a whole culture yeah. war over comic books. So really, we shouldn't be surprised. But Like I said, this is a very fruitful time for speculative stories because we're at a turning point Mm -hmm. historically in the United States and I think in England as well. So a couple of these big Western countries um, that, that sort of owned up the 19th and 20th century are coming into a day of reckoning and we need science fictional stories that teach us about how horrible things could get. We also need stories... Like Kim Stanley Robinson's Twenty Three Twelve, which talk about how, or like Cory Doctorow's new novel Walk Away, mm-hmm. which explore how things could get better and how through resistance um, we could build a better world, even if we really trash things and mess things up, you can always you can always make things better again, and I think that that's a good lesson to take away from either a kind of utopian or dystopian or midtopian. <laughs> just topian whatever topian uh, whatever william gibson yeah. is writing which is kind of halfway in between um both i think it's just the reminder that like no matter how bad things get we can screw up but you can always go back to getting better and it's like no you can't ha- make things back the way they were before you know you can mess things up and then you can come up with new solutions just like if you screw up you can always say sorry yeah <laughs> which sounds like this is a you know Four-year-old person lesson, like, which I I feel like I've had to teach to certain four-year-olds and five-year-olds, but you really can always, you know, history is, it is a long arc and we are going to have lots of opportunities to make things better. And so even if it gets full Handmaid's Tale, which really, I hope that we will that not let bummer, it yeah. go there. Um, we can still fight back. And actually, I think season two of the show might be about that. So, you know, maybe we'll get some hints.
1: Not that you're spending a lot of time thinking about the next book, but do you feel like the current moment in time will have a very, will have a very tangible impact on the next thing that you write?
0: I am working on two new books. One is nonfiction, and it's about um, lost cities and why we lost them. And the other one is another fiction novel Mm -hmm. for Tor. And um, it's going to be about time travel and changing the timeline. And it's very much affected by... uh, Both books actually are very affected by what's going on right now. And they're both about hard solutions to hard problems. Uh, There's no easy fixing uh, these issues. But I think if we understand the complexity of the problems, that helps us get toward figuring out what the hell to do next.
1: There goes Annalie Newitz. That was actually recorded a while back when she was in town for BookCon, but we've been holding on to it for a bit because she has a new book coming out next month on tour called Autonomous. It's already been getting quite a bit of good buzz and I very much enjoy that conversation. As you probably gathered, I've been a little bit obsessed with robotics of late. It has to do with my job. Uh, I- at TechCrunch put on a really big robotics event at the MIT campus a couple of weeks back so I've been uh, I've been thinking about the current state of robotics and it was nice talking to somebody who has been thinking about that as well and, and projecting a little bit beyond that a really really interesting conversation can't wait to read the book thanks so much to her for taking the time to do that thanks to you guys as always for listening to the program if you've got any feedback it's rwildcast at gmail.com I checked that mailbox, apparently, for the first time since, like, March, so uh, I'm going to be going out of my way to be checking that more often because I had some guest suggestions from um, early i guess late late uh, late winter early spring you can also like us on facebook i guess that's a way to get uh, some more immediate feedback as well follow us on tumblr that's rylcast.tumblr.com that is the first and best place to get all of your riyl related information and uh, i think that's about all i got for this week so stick around because we'll be back just about this time next week with another episode of riyl